Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Made possible, of course, by our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Today, we're talking to leading soccer commentator Robbie Thompson. But Robbie is not your usual play-by-play man. Indeed, he may well reside among the more fascinating figures in Australian football. From Canberra to following the world game around the world, Robbie is once again lending his talents to the A-League via Channel 10 and Paramount+. Plus. Robbie Thompson, hello, and thanks a lot for your time, mate. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I am uh, conscious of the fact that this will be foreign territory for you in large parts, given your whole profession is about talking about other people's deeds, and here I am expecting you to talk about yourself. Exactly. It's, it's, been, a, it's been a personal battle for me. It's, it's, we can talk about it because it was one of the reasons why I left Australia all those many years ago, to, uh, to, to, to live the sport and live football and, and make heroes out of the people that actually do the job on the pitch. Well, we're going to relive that uh, this morning. To be honest, your resume reads like a volume of Encyclopedia Britannica. I mean, there's there's World Cups, there's Euros, there's African Cup of Nations, there's Asian Cups, there's working for some of the biggest clubs in the world, there's commentary, there's reporting. I'm just glad, Robbie, we've been able to get you to sit still for an hour or so. Yeah, it's well, I'm, I'm getting better at that as well. It was um, it was a whirlwind 25 years of chasing the round ball all over the place and doing whatever I could to be a part of it. And now that's still going, but there is a, a little bit more time to, to enjoy it. It would appear to speak to a man who is just prepared to throw throw himself into the deep end or to, to use some Aussie vernacular just to have a red hot crack and to submerge yourself in foreign cultures and, and different ways of life. Yeah, I think um, I don't know where exactly that came from. Growing up in Canberra, my mum was a ballet teacher and had been a ballet dancer who'd left Australia when she was a teenager to go and study in London and then travelled around the world dancing. My stepdad was a dancer as well in the in dancing in Europe and danced in New Zealand and the Australian ballet. So I sort of had this idea that if you wanted, if you felt really passionate about something, you'd just go and do it. And my family were never like one to say, look, you've got to study and get a job in a bank or do that. I mean, I did hundreds of jobs as a teenager, delivering newspapers, soft drinks, whatever cafes, kitchen hand, waiting, everything. But it was always just go and do it. There's no pressure. You can. You don't have to worry about. I didn't have to worry about looking 20 years ahead. Mm. I was allowed to. I, my family gave me the tools to say, "You want to do something? Go for it." And can you bust a move like your mum and your stepdad? Absolutely not. Never, <laughs> never did it. And that's another weird thing. My my sisters were dancers. Uh, my younger sister is still a, a very well respected dancer, even in her I won't say her age, um, and doing very well. And and I I just got football somehow. We'll go back to Canberra in a moment. I mean, I want to 
ask you, though, you're well-traveled, obviously, which we'll detail. How, how many languages can we say that you speak? Well, I did four years of Chinese at school and can only say one thing, which is, would you like to play table tennis? <laughs> That's an important question. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, my French is good. I lived there for 20 years. And then I studied Italian at uni because of football, so I get enough by and I can probably, you know, order a couple of beers in Portuguese or Spanish as well these days as well. So, German's a big hole. Don't Can't get my head around German. I guess, not to sound cheesy, but you, you'd appear to be living proof, you know, in the here and now to, to pursue what you're passionate about. And, it, and if you want something badly enough, then you, you don't sit back and wait for it or hope or, or dream that it will happen. You, you reach out and you grab it. You know, damn the fear of rejection almost. I think if you're prepared to work hard, I mean, I honestly, and I think people feel this, and it is a question of, of where your limit in terms of what what you're prepared to take as a risk. At what point do you think, oh, I'm not going to head across to the other side of the world with no contacts and nothing just because, I, you know, how will I get back or I don't want to leave my family or I'm here in a comfort thing. Um, I was prepared to do anything, basically, to, to work in football. I wasn't a good enough player. I was I was okay, but not good enough to, you know, live that part of the dream. So the next thing was just do whatever I can. And it's just in you. For me, it was never a hard decision. It was never a thing of taking a risk or sacrificing anything. It was all I all I ever wanted to do. So from that respect, I could only see positive. In Melbourne, you know, I was I would go without food for days, you know, because we, we had no money, me and my mates living down in Melbourne. We'd go and watch South Melbourne play and, and I had a job answering telephones at Victorian Soccer once a week and you know we were on the dole and and we just because that's we weren't prepared to go and work at pack shelves or do another job because we wanted to work in football and that was it going without food isn't a sacrifice well i mean eventually you know if we were all if we were starting to drop dead we would have got jobs (laughs) but yeah there were times when you know we we just wanted to play football and watch football and work if we were we were nerds we were football nerds of the the highest degree i've got to ask you now i mean are you given all the years of uh, of travel and experience behind you. Are you a name dropper? And if and if not, then you should be. I am only in private. I, I wouldn't, I mean, with the guys who I work with, you know, because they're passionate. Everyone everyone in my industry, uh, particularly in football, but I think in all sport, if you're working in tennis, you're working in AFL or, N- or NRL, people are madly passionate and they love to hear my stories, yeah. you know, about talking passports with Hatton Ben Arfer or, or, you know, hearing rumours of some transfer that's going to happen or some match that was fixed back in the back in the 1990s and and all these sort of you know mythology around ar- around the game and everything people love hearing that and I love hearing that about other people as well that's the other thing when you when you live when you live your passion like we do there's no jealousy or or you know name dropping and that sort of thing you just love to hear these yeah. stories I love to hear you know chatting I can chat with John Aloisi or you know the, my next door neighbor about our football experiences and what we do because everyone just loves it and that's you know and that's sport I think that's something that sport gives anyone and as kids when we're kids when we're 8 10 13 15 you got it as well because you 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 do what you do you just sport is everything yeah you know the watching watching just hours of television in uh, in january on school holidays watching all the cricket watching in in winter watching everything watching horse racing for god's sake when you're 10 i mean but we do it because that's what you know that's you there's something about sport and competition and we as a nation have it pretty pretty good we we have that bug we encourage that bug in kids and then you know some of us just can't let go of it and that's all great too but i think what what we didn't have what you didn't have what i didn't have and what we've got now is our kids is we get to peek behind the curtain a bit more you know the documentaries are fantastic we get to know the stories that you yeah. can tell and we get to see what goes into making these elite sports men and sports women i mean
mean, you must get asked all the time, the megastars of the game that you rub shoulders with, you know, at PSG or wherever it might have been, you must get asked what they're like all the time. Yeah. To tell you the truth, you don't always, even when you're in it, you don't always get close enough to some of these characters just because they're so, they're so big. But yeah, you do. I mean, I was behind the curtain and that for that privilege. And we talk about experiences and sharing experiences. And, and yeah, these documentaries that look behind the scenes are, are great. But for me, it's the best thing about looking behind the curtain is seeing why and how these athletes or this club or this industry can do what it does on the pitch for 90 minutes once a week or twice a week. That's what the, the most exciting thing about looking behind the curtain is, is just to see how Lionel Messi trains, how he is, you know, for we see, people see Lionel Messi for 90 or 180 minutes a week. During a World Cup, maybe 270 with extra time. You know, that's a treat. Three games in a week yeah. uh, of Lionel Messi is something pretty special. I got to see him at training, you know, five, six times a week and arriving, getting dropped off, all that sort of thing. And that, that's looking behind that curtain and seeing how coaches are and seeing how players relate to, you know, the guy that mixes their drinks or the, the, the woman that washes or the guy that washes all the clothes in the training room, the kit men, these, you know, the kids that, that collect the footballs for them at training. There you see that person and how they relate to and everything is geared towards that 90 minutes on the football pitch. And that's the most important thing. And that's why football in Europe has reached this zenith point of complete focus and professionalism is because everything that happens and looking behind the curtain is about 90 minutes on the football pitch. For all my experiences, the one I took away most is that it's all about performing on the pitch for those 90 minutes. That above all else. So I'm going to ask what everyone else asks and, and, and probably a question that you can't answer. And that is, you know, what, what is Lionel Messi like? But you made an interesting point earlier in, in that they're so big, some of these guys, is that they, I'm sure, deliberately keep their distance and distance themselves from others. And, and they're something of a closed book. I mean, although Zlatan Ibrahimovic's uh, humour has become the stuff of legend over time. So I'm not sure if he was more forthcoming than, say, Neymar or whoever it might have been. I mean, can you discuss spitball that with us for a couple of minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first of all, everyone is different and there's personal character and I mean these guys aren't robots Zlatan is definitely not a robot Zlatan is a is a, a very intelligent man obviously outspoken there's that public persona I mean his jokes and the humor but behind it you see someone that's very intelligent um, there's a lot of bravado in these roles that they play when a player comes in for an interview if I was interviewing the the PSG guys which I did for nine years maybe it was something about being Australian maybe it was just the way I am and my character but I always treated everyone as more or less an equal. I was respectful, of course, but I was prepared to make a joke. Mm. I was prepared to break through that first barrier because there is a little bit of intimidation. I mean, when Zlatan walks into the room and he sees a new guy, and I was brought in at PSG because of I spoke English and they were, they'd just been taken over by the Qataris, even though I'd been around the club and working for the club in a different capacity for, for a few years before all the money arrived, if you like. I was brought in because they had David Beckham, they had Zlatan and they wanted to get someone that could talk to them properly and intelligently and, and do football. So Zlatan walks in and he sort of sees a new guy sitting there and he, and, and I just didn't, I introduced myself straight away confidently and I saw just this, he just sort of looked back, look you up and down. It immediately broke the ice and he said something and I said something and I told a joke or or something and and that was it and we were uh, we were away and I never had I had one run in with Zlatan um which was not a pleasant 
experience and I had run-ins with other players that were very tough um, and intimidating. Even in your role as the in-house broadcaster, you would have these uh, obviously. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, now it it got to the point, you know, someone like Neymar, you have to understand and every case is different. You know, we would have Brazilians like Lucas Moura who went to Tottenham after, after PSG and he was with Neymar. They were in the same youth teams together coming through in the in the national team they won the, the the world youth cup i think and scored they won the final six nil or something and and lucas scored three goals was the big star and then neymar became the big star but these these two were big stars as kids you couldn't find two more different personalities and characters lucas was was always outgoing exuberant would come towards you would be would stay and have a chat would joke would be laughing would be very open and expressive in interviews neymar is very closed in interviews and and you know he come in and shake your hand and he says hello and he can have a joke it's not open expressive and you know that's partly his character it's also partly the fact that you know he's one of the biggest players in the world lucas it didn't happen for him his career didn't follow that same trajectory and you know, Neymar is worth so much money that if he says something wrong, if he gets involved or, you know, he thinks, you know, maybe he thinks that I'm going to start asking him for money, which must happen just the whole time. You know, if he becomes friendly with someone, these guys get asked for money. They get asked to support causes. They're asked for interviews the whole time. Mm. I understand, having having worked at PSG, I can understand just how difficult it is. And sometimes for someone like Neymar, who's an introverted kid, who's just a kid that wants to play football is incredibly good at it. He has other people to take care of all that white noise for him. Zlatan, Zlatan takes care of it by himself. He has a couple of other people around him. Mino Raiola was his agent, of course, and a, and a huge figure as well. But Zlatan was wanted to be in control of all that. And so he would decide what interviews he does. Neymar has people because, because he has contracts and sponsorship deals and everything. He has people that say, yes, he'll do that. No, he won't do that, including to talking to us, the PSG club yeah, media, right. just because they're there are so many elements and demands on their time. Zlatan had all those same demands, but Zlatan was a different character. Zlatan was one who would just put his foot down. He would say what he would and wouldn't do. And there were other players like that as well. Lots of players just don't like talking. Others are, uh, you know, happy to happy to chat. Others will just straight bat all your answers. Others you have to get underneath and break through that first barrier, and then you get some really interesting interviews out of them. Others you never will, and you just have to accept. Look, I'm never going to get anything out of yeah. out of this player because they don't want to. They're not they're not up for this. They don't enjoy this this experience, and that's it. I apologise because I know I keep coming back to him. But Leo, was he much the same as Neymar? Yes. Leo is is a very private guy. And again, it's because, I mean, for all we can talk about Zlatan and Thiago Silva and mm. David Luiz, big players, big players that I've, that I've had the, you know, Marco Verratti, whatever. Leo and Ney are next level. They're like David Beckham. They're, they're next level global superstars. Mm. It's hard to explain in, to an Australian public as well just what that is. I mean, we're talking, you know, I mean, Muhammad Ali, Pele, Michael Jordan. These are these are these characters, and you can't just go and and chat to them. Leo, very respectful, very nice. I did the first interview when he arrived at Paris, and he was, you know, really really open, but straight batted everything. You know, they can't say they can't, you know, divulge things, you know, about their personal life, about you know where they where they see the future, because a they're not like that, and b they don't want to be held if they say something. What happens in the future? They don't know. It could be worth when you're talking about these players. It could be worth millions millions and millions and millions of, of euros or dollars if they say the wrong thing at the wrong time and it gets held against them. They're very guarded like that.
that. But Leo is always Leo is a, a just a simple guy. Simple guy. When the times we interviewed him, he was very nice. Comes in, shake your hand. Um, I remember after the he scored his first Champions League goal against I think it was Manchester City at the Parc des Princes. And he came in and we were there waiting to interview him. He was the last person to come into our room. He doesn't go in where all the media are, where all the millions of media are. He came in, he gave us all a hug, you know, like, and, you know, because he was so happy and, and nice and he was happy to answer everything. But then, you know, he's not one to come in and come in and see the media team when he arrives at training and say hello to everyone. He just gets out of his car, goes through, goes to the changing room, plays football, goes home, hangs out with his kids. It's what he does. We don't get invited to their houses for parties. You know, you don't. <laughs> we don't have a, a privileged connection but but I mean Leo, Leo Messi is a guy who is so driven and focused and I talk about performing in those 90 minutes again that's and that moment of that World Cup and how he's played this season for PSG was incredible and getting to the World Cup for that moment you know that's his whole life his whole life and Neymar's the same even if he's got you know enjoys having his mates around and having a party. I don't think even Leo is so focused and everything that it's just one, that's his whole life. His whole life, there's room for family and his and his dad and his mates who, who travel around and follow him a lot. He's got his wife and kids, but his whole life is football. His teammates, his best mates are Di Maria, who was also at PSG and is a legend and won the World Cup as well. Um, Paredes, Leandro Paredes, who was also at PSG. And these guys that that help him play better at football. They're, they're the guys. Neymar, is a great mate because at Barcelona they struck it up and they're your circle you're not talking about a guy that has loads of friends outside of football mm. Leo is the most driven focused footballer and you don't get to where he got without being that and that's the bottom line from the age of eight people saw that talent playing for Newell's old boys in Argentina on dirt pitches, you know, signed for Barcelona at 14. I mean, that sort of stuff is, it changes your whole, you are not a normal person, if I can say it that way. You try and be normal among your among your family and, and very small group of friends, you are a normal person. But once outside of that, it's, you know, you are just focused on being a successful footballer. And that I think people outside struggle to to understand what it takes to perform mentally and physically at that level, like he has done for eighteen years. Look, I'm there getting all carried away early on asking you about the megastars. I promised I wouldn't do that, and look what I've done. Uh, you're listening to this is your journey. It's thanks to Tone Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. So after the break, how does a kid from Canberra, growing up in a non-football family, find himself obsessed with world football? Robbie T- Thompson will uh, tell us right after this break. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals. Visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey. It's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to Channel 10 and Paramount Plus A-League commentator Robbie Thompson. Now, now, Robbie, I mentioned before the break, and I hope I wasn't being unfair, I think you were born into what uh, you would most people would call a non-football family. So for someone like you to be willing to do what you've done, uh, chase the game across the globe, which we'll continue to detail throughout the show, the football bug must have been caught big time somewhere along the line. Can you take us back? Can you possibly pinpoint that moment or experience where 
where it got you and it got you for good. Yeah, I started playing with Melrose Soccer Club in Canberra when I was seven. So I think my first year was 79-80 that I put the little season pin into the into the plaque. And from then on, so I played it and loved it because it was great camaraderie with the with the other kids. We won the under-13s first division in Canberra, which was a definitely a huge turning point. That was my last year of primary school before heading to, to high school. So that was big. When I went to high school, I played with the, the school team and I, I went to a rugby school. Soccer was not well looked upon or football, um, which I have to keep remembering to call it, <laughs> even though when I talk about growing up, for me, it was always soccer as well. My school didn't think football, soccer was that great. Um, and I think that's where, that was definitely where I first caught the bug for what football could really mean to me, which was, I was growing up in a, as you say, a non-football, that's a perfectly fair way to call it, not only non-football, non-sport right. family. <laughs> Sport just was not an issue. Sport did not register a blip anywhere at any point in a, on, a, on a family rate. My parents couldn't understand why I was watching so much of it on TV, like, you know, and, and obsessed. But they always, you know, they always, they sent me off on cricket camp and you know I was a fast fast left-hand bowler um not not that good broke my back doing it though all the same when I was 17 from just leaning back too far trying to be like you know Tomo the other one (laughs) (laughs) um and so the bug really caught me I'd say in year 10 so 15 16 with a couple of mates and we discovered Italian football just by you know it would have been one of the first years that SBS was showing Syria um so we're talking 1988 I went on a European trip with my family it was the first time we'd left Australia in 88 and just went and saw like theatres and ballets and, <laughs> and stuff and did absolutely nothing so it wasn't there it wasn't any European football bonanza but yeah I think when we saw that it was something that I grew up in as I say in this you know white bread society in Canberra which was you know a small city Canberra back in the in the 80s and suddenly we discovered this this European football it was literally like the doors of the of the rest of the world were just flung open. I mean, there was color and everything, but it was it was there. Seeing the passion of this incredibly elite sport mixed with culture and a foreign language and exotic and seeing fans going crazy, seeing how much that meant to the people of Italy, for me was something I had never experienced. I liked, you know, Canterbury-Bankstown and the Australian cricket team. And, you know, I went and watched the Raiders occasionally with, with other mates, not my family. <laughs> and But, it, but, but it, was, it was nothing on the Richter scale compared yeah. to what we were seeing come from Europe. And it's like that old saying, isn't it? You, you, you can be it if you can see it. And so you're seeing it at the same yeah. time. And, and you're like a lot of us, you grow up, I think, essentially wanting to play the game, not wanting to commentate it. But yeah. that might be selling you short because I think I read somewhere along the line, you used to commentate your mates playing, um, you know, video games or you'd write match reports for, for your own club, Melrose, wouldn't you, along the way? So you were dabbling early on with it all. Me and my mates were obsessed. I was the only one that really would commentate. And so, yeah, there was something in that. I mean, I, Martin Tyler is obviously the, the point, but John Motson as well. I remember I was memorising bits of commentary from, I mean, that's, yep. I, I said earlier that a football nerd there you go it's hard to hard to get much more than that like you know i could i could recite 30 40 seconds of john motson commentary from a game from a great goal the whole thing like people can now with with martin tyler but this was yeah it was i was definitely attracted to that side of it as well but maybe from the performance side of my family or something or the idea of of performing i knew also pretty early on because i rubbed shoulders with for what i wanted to keep playing like you say we all want to play we all want to so i gave that a good crack you know i broke 
three knee operations, two ankle operations, back, cut open, broken, everywhere. My body wasn't made out to be an elite athlete. But playing against kids in Canberra in the first division, like Belconnen United and stuff, I could see training with them that they were just so far in front of me, that that was not going to be a route forward for me. Not elite, not at that level. So perhaps subconsciously somewhere I, I did think. And also commentating my mates playing and writing match reports. And we were writing fake match reports using all names of famous footballers to replace our own and and just it was all about the glory it was all about the glory of the game my mates playing in an arcade at Woden shopping center you know was sharing my passion for the game and we'd have people come around and be watching the guys you know banging around and I'd be calling all the players you know Batistuta yeah. and all this and, and going crazy it was it was a performance and it was the glory of it I loved it <laughs> I was much the same I was uh, by the way unstoppable with Gabriella Batistuta on FIFA what version would it have been probably 98 <laughs> or something hey yep, yeah so- <clears throat> yeah the move to Melbourne, I mean, you touched on the Victorian Soccer Federation earlier. So here's you being the soccer nerd that you are. You get a part-time job with them. I mean, I think even at this stage, somewhere along the line, you've got a uni degree. And here you are manning the phones to find out if Sunshine's beat Broadmeadows 2-1. Yeah, that was an opportunity to get a, a toenail in the door. I'd like to think that there are kids that still do it. And there are, you know, there are passionate young broadcasters today who have done, you know, who do the hard yards and have done the hard yards. But yeah, that was a pretty, it was a pretty tough job. <laughs> <laughs> on a Sunday morning, on a Saturday oh, morning, they're all afternoon, just answering the phones, people calling in scores, data entry, basically. But I felt, you know, it was a it was a part of it already. And yeah. then from there, I got a job at the VSF, more or less full time, helping, well, part time, helping during the week, organize the disciplinary tribunals during the week. So, you know, sending out paperwork and everything. And I'll tell you a funny story. So there were people there, George Angelopoulos um, at the time, Ian Greener was the VSF development coach at the time. And these people, you know, we t- we talk about football. I, for me, it was I was having to send out things saying your player will be suspended on this and th- this and that date, and your player has to come to the tribunal for swearing at the referee on this or this date, um, and all this sort of thing. But the rest of the time, I was chatting to these guys about football, and I'd go and take photos of the final series with just you know my my standard camera. Uh, you know, it all it all snowballed. And then 15 years later, when I was in Paris, I got a call from a guy running a, who'd seen an article about me in Paris. This foreign kid in France going off and doing this stuff and loves French football um, and he said we run a huge youth tournament we've never had Australia come and play at this tournament and so I got back on the phone to these guys from the VSF I contacted you know Football Australia they didn't have a they'd already planned out all their tournaments so Victorian Soccer Federation sent a team over um, to come and play in this youth tournament and that was so that for me you know it's all linked that was from that job answering phones and entering things led to this mm. where I was now uh, bringing out a Victorian Soccer Federation under 15 side to come and play in this youth tournament and a couple of the kids you you know there's a there's a kid now who played in that tournament to, to name drop um by the name of Jamie McLaren oh wow who was in that team so Nick Ansell was another one there were a couple of kids that went on to have A-league careers Nick Ansell plays for Adelaide now um and they were there and they played this tournament they played against a guy called Paul Pogba for France you know I mean these are these experiences and that for me was my way of being involved still you know of from answering the phones it's <laughs> a long way from the park to France I know that much uh, we're talking to soccer college Tata, Robbie Thompson, this is your journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Live. So let's delve a little bit deeper into Robbie's colourful life abroad right after. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. 
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. Today's guest is renowned soccer commentator and journalist Robbie Thompson. So, Robbie, a lot of the time, having the passion is great, the enthusiasm, you'll do anything, that's all great, but still we need people to open doors. Sometimes it's not what you know, it's who you know. And for you, a name that appears to come up regularly regularly in your journey is a name that a lot of listeners will know, and that's David Bashir. I mean, how important was he in the very, very early days there when it came to the link, obviously, to SBS? 100%. David Bashir, there's no other way putting it and I think a lot of people rediscovered that over the last couple of months with his World Cup commentary. David Bashir is a legend. David Bashir is one of the nicest guys in television. The sister of my girlfriend had a boyfriend who worked at Channel <laughs> 10 and his mate there was a mate of David Bashir and we met just by chance at a party, a get together and I knew who he was because he was commentating the NSL and we got chatting about football. This was in 1997 and he said, look, we're heading off to the World Cup next year. We're going to need staff here in Melbourne, someone to, to cover for me. And he literally said, you can talk about it. And I'd never, never envisaged, you know, seriously taking that, that next step. And that was, David just took me under his wing and he said, I think you could, you know, why don't we see if you want to be a, a journo, if you want to, if you want to cover football, you know all about the NSL. I knew, and it's true. I was obsessed with that as well. <laughs> and so he just took me in and, you know, all of a sudden I was going and interviewing players at, at Melbourne Knights, at South Melbourne with him going and David wasn't only doing football of course you know we yeah. I was interviewing athletes tennis players swimmers all sorts of things within six months and then David went off to do the World Cup and I replaced him at SBS on the on Toyota World Sports on their on their evening show and and was doing that met got introduced to Les Murray to Johnny Warren to these guys and for 18 months probably until I left a bit more I was sort of a, a second stringer in in Melbourne for SBS TV and it's all thanks to David Bashir that moment and what he did for me was to show me that it's possible. He opened the door. I feel that I had to seize it. I had to seize that opportunity, um, which I which I obviously did, you know, further down the line. But him opening that door, incredible confidence boost. That's a beautiful chapter. It really is. Uh, so I want to skip from there forward a few years. I think you're in your mid-20s. You decide, I'm going to pack it all in here. I'm going to move over to Paris. I'm going to move to France. I'm going to chase it. How did it come about? Why did it come about? And just how, looking back on it, how big were the kahunas to actually do it? I wanted more. I was ambitious. I was, like you say, I was 25, 26. I I was working part-time. I wanted to be involved in football more and I wanted to immerse myself in the football. I felt distinctly then, and I say this with huge respect to two pioneers of the game in Australia, which are Les Les Murray and Johnny Warren, who, who I worked with and were both incredibly nice to me but my vision already then as a kid starting out in the in the thing in the whole industry was when I my mum knew the name of Johnny Warren and Les Murray but she didn't know Paul Trimboli or Kresimir Marosic or you know Josip Biskic or these guys or Milan Ivanovic Alex Tobin you know players that were playing Mark Viduka these guys and these guys were playing in Australia and these were the these were the guys that were so impressive to me and the the heroes the guys that I wanted to so I felt in Australia we weren't a mature enough 
footballing nation yet. To not be able to celebrate, to create a celebrity out of two journalists, rightly Johnny Warren for his career as well. I'm not saying that. I'm saying we weren't mature enough yet to celebrate the achievements of our footballers on the pit. And we weren't mature enough to back ourselves and say, tactically, we're a good footballing nation. What we're producing here on the pitch is good. We had to have these television personalities that Johnny was, a, and both were great ambassadors for the sport, but we weren't talking enough about the players. And that for me was, was a, a point of conflict for me and why I wanted to go and be a small fish in a big pond where I could try and get as close as I could to these players and the athletes that were actually doing it. The most important thing, like you talk about documentaries behind the curtain, you know, talk, so the most important thing is 90 minutes mm. of football. Our football is good. The A-League is good to watch. Players are working hard. They're professional athletes who deserve more respect than for me they get in this country because we don't talk about them. We talk about football. We talk about soccer, the game. We talk about this and that. We don't talk about these individuals who are playing it. And the money's nothing here compared to what they could get in Europe. If they were a French kid or a, or an Italian kid or a, or a you know German kid, these guys would be legend. They playing in the first division and you know we we need to build them up and that's what I hope we will continue to do it. It's not easy. It's been tough. Household names in Australia are still AFL, NRL, tennis players, swimmers. Our footballers, what the World Cup team did, the Socceroos, you will not find bigger ambassadors for Australia in the world than those Socceroos. I was getting messages from everywhere. The whole world saw the Socceroos. The whole world knows the name of Graham Arnold, the coach of these Socceroos. The whole world knows the name of Matt Leckie. In Australia, we don't. And how is that possible? I mean, I know it's improving and the Socceroos are a big vehicle and the Matildas will be as well. Yep. But no one no one knows, watches the Liberty A-League. Nobody watches the A-League. And it's crazy to think that, you know, when these guys get picked up and go to a World Cup, they are Australia's biggest sporting ambassadors. So how do we fix that? I mean, the fight for relevancy is something I wanted to ask you about. Fight that the A-League or football has in this country? I mean, it's, a, it's, it's trench warfare sort of stuff, isn't it? It is. It's massive. Couldn't believe it when I came back just the absence of football and how political it, it appears to me to be. I mean, we would have, you know, and we saw it during the World Cup, the AFL announced a fixture announcement on the morning of a, of a Socceroo game against Denmark, you know, yeah. where thousands of people are up in the middle of the night watching Socceroos and the AFL do that. That's political. And they, because it gives, they... They didn't have any news. There's no news in that announcing a fixture list, but they needed to be able to justify filling newsprint in the newspaper and not pumping up. A, and it's not a rival. Well, it's a rival sport. It's a rival product. Basically, you know, a, a, a Fairfax or a, a Murdoch have a vested interest in maintaining the status quo because they're making a lot of money. They're selling a lot of media. They are making a lot of money in advertising off of AFL, NRL cricket. But when you can cannot have a match report of a first division game in the newspaper the next day just because it doesn't fit your agenda or you, you're worried that football is going to become popular and take money away from what you're doing. There has to be some sort of independent regular, you know, regulator. This exists in other elements, but not in sport. But it is frustrating. It is frustrating when you're working in this industry mm. to see this. And people know about Australia. They know koalas, kangaroos. They know that they know the Socceroos now after after 
after mm. December and, and Qatar 2022. And that is a great way to vehicle our identity and people here have to realise it and get behind the Socceroos and get behind the sport. You're as educated as anyone to discuss this very fo- fact. I mean, the foothold that the A-League has, I guess, on the Australian sporting psyche. Has it grown? And So your last in here was when, behind the mic, 2011 to 2013, I think. Has it grown at all noticeably? Like, you're in a position to compare. I mean, has it grown at all? In 2011 was a great season. 2012 was a great season. Um, the Western Sydney Wanderers had just arrived. There was a great feeling Del Piero was was in Australia. Um, and it has just gotten smaller and smaller, the industry. It's hard to to explain the, the APL split from Football Australia. I mean, that's all that's all political. That's mm. these are business steps that need to be worked through. But there's no doubt that the football industry has shrunk since since that time. And the whole idea of this new project and what was sold to me and the idea of coming back was let's be a part of this reboot. We're rebooting the A-League. And then COVID was a disaster. Obviously, last season was, was very difficult, which didn't help. But again, you talk about the media coverage and everything. For me, it was shocking. It was shocking. I was incredibly disappointed with how last season went. Crowds, everything. The image of the game has not domestically in terms of the A-League has not advanced from what I can see. And hopefully, you know, crowds are starting to turn on the back of the Socceroos. I mean, I know we've had another couple of little hiccups, um, but all of this is is the step forward now. And probably last year can be written off because of COVID. I didn't agree at the time. I thought we should still be trying to do more to build it, but we're growing this year. One thing I will say, comparing to, to Europe and to here, is that here, and this is something that we need to not be naive about, um, but we we also need to keep is the fact that in Europe it is professional and sport is professional to the one millionth percentage. There is very little romance left about running a sporting club, about running a sporting competition, about TV deals. It is all about the money. The football players in Europe are numbers and that is it. There are very few that can rise above that. And in Australia, we still have this idea that foot football, all codes, that sport is a passion, an amateur experience in the heart of it. Amateur as in I love it, which is what amateur means. You play for the love of it, mm. not for not for not money so much. But this idea of, of Australia, you know, sport is not that important. Our athletes are paid. They're, play, they're paid well. We love watching it. We celebrate it. But in Europe, it's next level. It is life. It is life and death sport in, in Europe. If your football team wins or loses, it affects the mood of everyone. And I don't think we want to get there the way it is in Europe, where it's it's a purely a business. Sport is purely a business for making money in Europe. Here we have this romantic, nostalgic, fun version of sport, which is great. But we also can't be naive and think that it's not a business. You have to make smart decisions. Football in this country has to be smarter. It has to be far smarter and think three steps ahead to say this is a business the way it is overseas because that's how you can develop a Lionel Messi. It's not Barcelona thinking we're we represent the Catalan people and we're this. Barcelona want to win football matches. They paid Messi the most outrageous amounts of money so that he would stay and play for them so that they could win. It was its competition and its money. And we have to bring that here while not losing the fact that we love sport and that there are great stories. It's a fine line. It does make sense. We're talking to Robbie Thompson, uh, A-League commentator here on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tubman Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. We'll be back with Robbie right after this break. 
You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey, thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. And one of the most fascinating figures in Australian uh, soccer slash football, Robbie Thompson, has been our guest uh, today. Robbie, I've got to ask you about the, the Women's World Cup. I mean, it, it's always said that the opportunity to get a slingshot from the Men's World Cup is there, and we lived it last year. But what about the Women's World Cup on our shores later this year? I mean, surely this is going to be enormous. This is the biggest single sporting event in Australia since the Olympics. I was in France for the last World Women's World Cup in 2019, and it was incredible. You know, I made the official film of that World Cup for FIFA TV. For me, it was incredibly enriching experience because we just were talking before the break about looking behind the curtain about the the, the nuts and bolts and professionalism of, of sport. This was so refreshing. This in many ways is what the ideal of what professional sport could be in Australia, women's football. It's still so innocent. It's in a it's, it's early years, it's developing. We need to pay our, our women footballers. We have in Sam Kerr, one of the best three female footballers in the world. It is absurd mm. to think that and to think of her profile in this country. I mean, I know we know who Sam Kerr is and everyone knows who Sam Kerr is, but it's still not enough. She is, if in men's terms, she is just behind Lionel Messi, you know? That's that's where we're putting it. And, and we shouldn't even compare it in men, men's terms because she is Sam Kerr. It is a remarkable, incredible thing that we should be using so much. She is, like I talk about the Socceroos, she is an ambassador. She is on the front of the FIFA game, the most sold, the most played game anywhere in the world. And she's on the cover of that alongside Kylian Mbappe. This is mind boggling stuff. And, and we have to make more of that. And people will see it, I hope. I hope people will see it. The game's just been changed. The opening game against Ireland to foot to Stadium Australia. There's going to be eighty thousand there. It's going to be massive, and people are going to see that people come from all over the world for this. And women's football is, without a doubt, something that is going to grow so fast all around the world. It is growing massively, and in Australia, we have to harness that. We should be hitching all the bandwagons yeah. on the back of the Matildas, all sponsors, everyone jump on because if you're if you have any notion of being international this is your window into the world women's football in australia is going to grow massively it is going to grow massively just just look at what's happening in england in italy in the usa in china all over the world it is growing massively and and i can't stress it enough it is a juggernaut for australia internationally we've spent a lot of time with you today talking about the bigger picture of, of the sport in this country which is great and i think it's something that we need to discuss especially with the Women's World Cup coming out this year. I mean, we didn't spend as much time on 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 uh, the Parc de Prance and the life there, which I'm which I'm titillated by. It must be said. But so before I let you go, I'll put you on the spot a little bit here. Your fondest memory of that nine year stint. I mean, you must get asked this all the time. Whether it be player interaction, the managers, the games, the stadiums. I mean, what now that it's the dust has settled on it, and you're in another chapter of your of your career. What what no. comes to mind most readily at that time? Because this, let's be honest, this was the Hollywood of football. I mean, this is. 
This is this is big time. No, it was incredible. I I, I mean, working for for PSG, I remember the first game, the first Champions League trip I went on. You know, I mean, and we're on the aeroplane with yeah, the players. Yeah, because you tra- you travel with, with the players. Yeah, players. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, travel with the players. Not so much anymore. I think that's changed. We, to give you an idea, there are now two private jets that go. One takes the players, and the other one takes the rest of everyone around the club to a Champions League match, for example. Wow. I've been to all the best stadiums in the world. It is hard to pin down. I mean, beating Barcelona 4-0 was incredible at the Parc des Princes. They then beat a 6-1 in the return, which was an equally incredible (laughs) evening, (laughs) one that nobody saw coming. I've had some great chats with Thiago Silva. Um, Laurent Blanc was a great World Cup winner with France. Thomas Tuchel was a great coach to to interview. Thomas Meunier, who's now at Dortmund, he was a great, great interview. Lucas and Marquinhos, the two Brazilian kids. Edinson Cavani. The best interview would probably be Zlatan. That first time I jumped on the plane, I remember going and sitting um, next to Maxwell, who was a lovely guy, and we'd had chats with him. He was a Brazilian left back, played the World Cup, and it turns out I'd actually taken Zlatan's seat on the aeroplane. And I said to, there were no seats, and I'd looked around. I said to Max, "Can I sit here?" And he sort of looked panicked and said, uh, "Yeah." And so I sat down and waited, and then Zlatan came on. And he walked and he sat He sat next to me. He didn't ask for his place. And he sat over and sat next to a, another player and, and spent the flight chatting there. And then someone came up to me afterwards and said, you know, you don't do that again. Those sort of moments, great moments, but always the best moments were the emotions on the football pitch, good and bad, just sharing the sharing the dream. It was all beautiful. Robbie Thompson, thanks so much for joining us today, mate. It's an incredible resume that you are continuing to develop. And the A-League is certainly all the richer for your presence behind the mic at the moment. Congratulations on what is... Is a fantastic career thus far. And thanks again once uh, very much for sharing it with us. Certainly, my pleasure. Good stuff. Good to chat. And thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can jump online. You can find them, of course, at tobinbrothers.com.au. And we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.